Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. Reading of God's Word, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And once more, we humbly ask uh, for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, that we might not just get information from your word, but that our hearts be enlightened and our lives be changed. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may take your seats. We are now on the last um, of the solace. Uh, today we'll be looking at grace alone. Um, again, we are laying down the foundation of what we believe as a church this year, and grace alone is one of uh, the fundamental teaching that we are holding. I grew up in the province, and in the province, everyone are, knows everyone, right? Everyone knows everyone, and many times... Uh, the young ones, when they did something wrong, uh, the father, the father of the person that they did wrong, I often hear this in the province, they would always say, kung hindi ka lang sana anak ni ano. You know? And they would, they, would, they would show you grace, they would forgive you, they would not put you to jail because you are the son. You know? That's what's happening in the province. You see, grace in Scripture is like that. It is something done good to us for the sake of another. This is what grace that we find in Scripture. The medieval theology, in other words, the time before the Reformation, uh, which later became the official Catholic teaching, leaned heavily they leaned heavily on Thomas Aquinas, who first coined or, or taught in an informal way that we can lose our justification, but there's a second plank of justification. But later on, an, a man named uh, Gabriel Diel is the one who systematized it. And he taught of uh, congruent merit and condign merit. So what's the difference between the two? Congruent merit, we've talked about this in our doctrinal class, so you have to attend our doctrinal class. Congruent merit means God gives you the grace, the infused righteousness, and that grace, you will cooperate with that grace, and as you cooperate with that grace that God gives you, initial grace that He gives you, He will give you more grace. He will give you more grace. That's congruent. In other words, congruous or in other words, cooperation. Now, as you do that one, you reach to a point where you deserve to be saved. Are you getting me? Now, as you reach to the point that you deserve to be saved, that's what they call condign merit. You are rewarded with something that you deserve. This is the theology during the medieval age. 
how Sinclair Ferguson point out one of these missteps, saying, For one thing, grace was regarded as more or less a substance infused into an individual, not a disposition of God toward the individual. So they were thinking that the problem or the mistake was that they're saying that grace is something infused to the individual so that you will produce your own righteousness through that infused grace. But as we look at the scripture later on, grace is a disposition of God toward the individual. Sa, sa time po natin, di ba may mga taong talagang magaan lang yung loob natin. Ano, si Malu is something, someone like that, he would say, I don't know that, let's help that person. Magaling yung loob ko talaga for that person. We have that. And when we're talking about disposition, this is God's heart to do something good to those whom he has chosen. It's a disposition. It's a posture of heart. If you may, from anger to goodness. From wanting to give you what you deserve to wanting to give you what you do not deserve. Are you with me? This is a disposition. Grace is a disposition. So Martin Luther insisted on the need to emphasize on grace alone. Because if you look at it, we've been talking about word alone, God alone, Christ alone, and faith alone. These are interconnected teaching. And the question is, why is there a need to emphasize on grace? And because of this medieval theology, Luther insisted that there is a need to emphasize on grace alone. That we may understand that the teaching of Scripture is not given you grace so that you will produce your own righteousness, but God showed us grace because of the righteousness of another. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that probably some of us who have a good memory, you're thinking, Titus 2, 1, Titus 2, 11 to 14 again, Pastor. I still remember on Christmas, you preached Titus 2, 11 to 14. I just realized that last Friday, and I was already in the middle of my study, and I cannot, you know. No, I realized that, that, well, I know that we have preached on Titus 11 to 14. Everything that I want to say or see grace as I was studying the, the Reformation, I can see it in Titus 2, 11 to 14. So please bear with me as I bring you again to Titus 2, 11 to 14 today. Now, we have to acknowledge that in this passage, in this passage, Paul is giving a ground, a reason. He was giving a reason why older men, younger men, Older women and younger women and bond servants, practically everyone in the church should live rightly. You find that one in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And he started verse 11 with the word for because he was actually giving a reason why all of us should live rightly. Therefore, the main thrust of chapter 2, 11 to 14, let's acknowledge, according to the Bible comment, New Bible Commentary, is that Christian behavior issues from the grace of God. Christian behavior flows from the gospel, from the grace of God. However, and look at this with me, Paul spoke of the grace of God here in a rather holistic picture. A very holistic picture about grace. He spoke of grace from the past has appeared in verse 11. In the present, training us, verse 12, and then for the future, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This gives us the picture that the grace of God is from the past, in the present, and to the future. This passage also sets the grace of God as the source of all His goodness, from salvation to sanctification to glorification. It all flows from the grace of God. What then is the grace of God? That is the burden of this sermon. What then is the grace of God? This is the question that we want to uh, substantially answer 
at the end of this sermon. Is grace only a power infused on individuals so he could produce his own righteousness? Or it is a favorable disposition of God towards believing sinners because of the righteousness of Christ. That's what we want to see. So as I start, let me give you a working definition of grace. Now I want to define it this way. Grace is God's favorable disposition in Christ Jesus, the sinners who deserve His wrath. Grace is God's favorable disposition, or if you may, gracious disposition. Na para bang parang gusto talaga ng Panginoon, ng puso ng Panginoon para dun sa mga pinili niya is pakitaan sila ng grasya at pabor. That's our working definition. Now, in this definition, we understand that we need God's heart to be in the posture of favor towards us always. It is not simply the action of God. Look at that. It's not simply the action of God. But His attitude towards us resulting to His favorable actions. Is God still angry of us as sinners? That's a question there. Or is God in the posture of favor already. So this is more than just the actions, but the actions is the display of that. It is speaking of the heart of God for His people, for those whom He has chosen in Christ Jesus. Now if you may, God is not like a father, for us father here. God is not like a father who gave an amount to His Son and say, I'm giving you an amount for business, but after that one, you're on your own. Make the business grow, produce your own money, because that's the only thing I would give you. If you cannot produce anything out of it, then you're done. Now, God is not like that. God is like a father who will be with the son all throughout. Now, looking at that, we then understand that if it is a disposition of the heart, if it is a posture of the heart to show goodness towards sinners, then it is, we need to insist that it's just grace alone and nothing else. Now here's where I will be circling today. We insist that it is by grace alone because the favorable disposition of God in Christ Jesus towards believing sinners is the source of all His goodness towards us from the past, in the present, and for the future. Let me read that again. We insist that it is by grace alone because the favorable disposition of God in Christ Jesus, that's very important, towards believing sinners is the source of all His goodness towards us from the past, in the present, and for the future. Now let's look at grace from the past. And it's still true today. Titus 2.11, it reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples. And notice well, or notice first that verses 11 to 14 in your scripture is one whole sentence. The period is at the end of verse 14. And the grace of God in this whole sentence, 11 to 14, is the subject. The, this passage is clearly talking about the grace of God. Furthermore, look at the grace of God for the grace of God. And then we have some information given to us. It functions like the source of everything good that Paul made mention here. So let's start our study with the grace of God. A simple observation, it says, therefore, the grace of God has appeared. Now, what comes into your mind when it says the grace of God has appeared? It means before it appeared, it has been there. It has been there. The word has appeared is the word behind epiphany in English. And it means full view or or full and clear view. So in other words, it has been there, but it has reached to a point where it is fully displayed. 
The focus really here, when Paul said has been appeared, he was referring to uh, the Son of God appearing in the flesh. He was referring to the coming of Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God used to be an action of God in the Old Testament, if you look at it. That actions of God has become a person. And when the grace of God took on flesh, when the grace of God took on humanity, then we sinful human beings can clearly see this grace of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we know it is talking about the flesh of Christ because this word is also used in verse 13. The word appeared in verse 13 is the same word which also talks about the bodily return of Jesus Christ. So again, it talks about the coming of Christ. However, before the coming of Christ, before the coming of Christ, the grace of God, again, has always been there. Admittedly, the word grace, have you ever seen a text in the scripture that says God is grace? Well, we see God is holy. God is just. Um, but nothing that says God is grace. What it says is God is gracious. Right? God is gracious. And that's right because when we talk about the graciousness of God, while it is a character of God, it is a character of God in the scripture, it's focusing on the action of God towards the undeserving. For example, you say, she is so gracious to me. Uh, you do not see, she is grace to me. Uh, she is gracious. And when you say, she is gracious to me or he is gracious to me, you're always referring to a, something that that person did to you, something good done to you. So the word gracious in Scripture, which is used a few times in the Old Testament, out of 150 occurrences in the whole of Scripture, is what we will be focusing on. And while we know that God is gracious to everyone, because everyone sinned against Him, we're not talking about common grace today. So every single person, those who came here in Villa Monica not to attend service but to swim, they are shown goodness, right? They experience such goodness of God, but that's not what we're talking. We're talking about the special grace of God today that we find in the Old Testament, and this is the grace of God that Paul is talking about here in Titus chapter 2.11. Now every time we see, you say, Pastor, there's only a few times that the Old Testament speaks of grace of God. But every time you, saw, you, you read of God showing goodness to people in the Old Testament, we see grace. Because none, not a single person in the whole Old Testament after the fall deserves to be shown goodness. Everyone deserves to be shown wrath. Exodus 33 verse 19 speaks of God. God is gracious. Exodus 34 verse 66, God is gracious. Now look at this. Surely, be, surely Adam experienced something that he did not deserve before the fall. Are you with me? Um, when we talk about covenant of works, which speaks of God giving a covenant, and He expects man to adhere to that covenant if he is to continue all God's goodness. We always hear pushbacks and saying, isn't it that it's God was still gracious to Adam? That's true. That's true. God was still gracious. But when we talk about grace in the Scripture, it always in the context of God showing grace to sinners. God showing goodness to sinners. So Adam surely received grace from God before the fall. But after the fall, it becomes clear. His teaching of grace is clear and suited after the fall. Now after the fall, Adam deserved death, isn't it? Genesis 2.17 says, the moment you eat of the tree 
of that tree in the middle of the garden, you will surely die. And he did. He deserved death. And while Adam died on that day, um, Eve died on that day. That's why when God entered into the into the uh, to Eden, Garden of Eden, God would have to look for them because they were hiding. Something died spiritually. They could no longer appear before God. Something died in them. But for God not to totally express what death is, meaning throw them to hell forever. In fact, God gave them the opportunity to confess their sins when God's first question is, have you eaten from, of the fruit from the tree that I told you not to eat? That was grace. You know why it's grace? Because God was giving Adam an opportunity to confess his sin. To come out and say, Lord, I did it. But Adam said, uh, the woman that you gave to me uh, gave me the fruits. But it was grace. Grace is introduced in the garden. Now look at this. From here, from here, after the fall, there is no other way for man to relate to God nor God to relate to man but through grace. We call this one covenant of grace. Now for us in church who are studying theology, uh, the, our new covenant theology brothers are saying that we flatten the whole scripture and call it grace. No, it's not true. We see the progression of this teaching, but we, we are just saying that from here, if God is to be good to man, it will only be through grace. Only be through grace. Then grace was further defined. Grace was further defined not as a compromise on the part of God and adjust his standards. Have you heard today saying, you are moving the post? Have you heard that expression? I mean, you hold someone at a certain standard, and then because this person is your friend, you'll move the standard lower. That's compromise. That's not what grace is. God never moved the post. He never lowered down his standard. God did not compromise. But, as, but instead, grace is giving what Adam deserved to another. When God killed an animal to cloth Adam and Eve. I mean, today, you go to the slaughter house or you know to the market you see a lot of uh, pigs uh, pork and chicken we're so used to it it's nothing you know every day thousands if not millions of pigs are being slaughtered but for the first time if you are adam and you do not even know what death looks like and today i love our dog i love our dog like this Morning, I was waking up at 1.30 in the morning, and then I'm supposed to pray and study, but I saw our dog, and I have to spend a few seconds just to hold her and talk to her. We love our dog. But you know, Adam, who is the perfect heart, at that time, with all purity, loves every animal more than us. He had that perfect love towards the animals. He might have kissed them, talk to them, go out in the field with them. He just simply loved every single one of them. And before his eyes, he saw one of these animals whom he loved killed right before him. And he knew exactly it was supposed to me who die. That was grace. We begin to define grace as not just simply God showing goodness, but it showed goodness because of another. Because someone died for our sins. And while others look at the clothing there as simply, you know, God just clothed them. But we cannot help but see that that's the first idea of atonement in all of the scripture. 
It's the first idea of atonement developed in all the scripture. And we also know that the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent is the Lord Jesus Christ who will die on the cross of Calvary. Right there from the very beginning, we grace is defined to us. That's why in all of scripture, it almost, it always smells blood. Because God's or grace is God's favorable show of goodness in Christ Jesus to sinners who deserve death. We'll be looking at more of that later on. But one thing we realize in the Old Testament, so we, I'm, I'm doing a study of the whole scripture about grace. Bear with me. Is that this graciousness of God became the foundation of all of God's goodness. Moses, when the Israelites were dancing around the calf, and God was supposed to destroy them. And yet Moses said, Lord, don't destroy them. This is essentially Exodus 33 and 34. Moses is saying to God, don't destroy them, Lord. Instead, instead of destroying them, show us your glory. Show us your glory. So instead of killing them, he showed them his glory. And he said in Exodus 34 verse 6, for example, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So in other words, this graciousness of God was the foundation why God did not kill the Israelites. Because he is a God who is gracious. Later on, Jehoshaphat, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, while not mentioning it, reading verses 5 to 20, you understand that he was appealing to the grace of God. He was. But Joel 2.13 is very clear. Joel chapter 2.13, they appealed to the grace of God saying, Return to the Lord your God. Or they were, sorry, appealing to the people. For He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. The most ironic person in the scripture most ironic, understood clearly the grace of God. He understood how gracious and merciful God is. And yet he hated the Ninevites. And he ran away from God. And look at the reason why Jonah ran from God when he spoke to God in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Here's what Jonah said. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious. You are a gracious God and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And relenting from disaster. He knew that God would back off, if you may, relent. From the disaster that he intended. The moment the Ninevites will repent. And he said, I know you will do it. I know you will not destroy them if they will repent because you are gracious. So every time the God's people appeals to God, they always appeal on the basis of that graciousness of God. The, David said, have mercy, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out your transgressions. In Psalm 116 verse 2, it's beautiful. I love this. He said, because he inclined his ear to me, because God is favorably disposed to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. So in other words, this grace of God flows His goodness towards His people. It's all because of this grace. 
So what we do not substantially, although I already said that when I think I was ahead of myself, uh, portraying Christ right away, but we see this being developed as we look at Scripture. Genesis 15, we know this. God asked Abraham to cut animals, line them off, facing one another, and then as covenant parties, God and Abraham were supposed to pass through those cut animals, signifying that if any of them will violate the covenant, they will be treated like those animals. But we know what happened. Verse 17 and 18, it reads, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between the, uh, the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It was God alone who went through those cut animals. Again, signifying that in the event that Abraham would fail, it would, God, it would be God who would suffer. And, and that is right. That is right. Because only by a sacrifice, only by a death of the innocent, can the attributes of God, can the character of God be reconciled? We just look at again, Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, very quickly. This would be the last text in the Old Testament. I promise you, we'll go to the New Testament from here. It says, Exodus 34, 67. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. In fact, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, it's a, he's a covenant God, so it goes to your children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Only by a sacrifice can all these attributes of God where His grace, His mercy, His goodness is being upheld, but at the same time, He will never clear the guilty unpunished. And this never stopped. The Passover. The Passover when God removed them in Egypt. Lambs should be killed. The sacrifices. Daily life of Israelites. They saw these sacrifices. These continues until, going back to Paul, until the grace of God has appeared. Until the grace of God has finally come into the flesh. Until the grace of God who was incarnated in the flesh, finally died on the cross. And until the, this lamb who died on the cross resurrected from the dead, showing that there is hope for us who are supposed to be dead. <clears throat> so like the animals in Genesis 15, the Passover, the sacrifices, the grace of God in Christ Jesus is the ground. It is the ground of every favor of God shown to sinners who deserve His wrath. So our focus today when we talk about the grace of God today is the ground or the reason or the foundation why God is able to show goodness to any of us. Again, let me read our definition of grace. Grace is God's favorable or gracious show of goodness in Christ Jesus to sinners who deserve his wrath. I want to point out something here. Since everything is pointed to Christ, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the animal that God killed to clothe Adam and Eve, the animals killed in the Genesis 15, and the Passover lamb, and all the sacrifices are pointing to Christ, then all of God's goodness shown to Noah, shown to Adam, shown to Abraham, shown to whoever in the Old Testament, all of that goodness still flows from the cross. It still flows from cross. Everything flows from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Everything flows from the grace, from the grace of God. And because Paul knew that the graciousness of God always has salvation 
at its object. Always has salvation as its goal. He then said in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I've already talked about this. It doesn't mean all people will be saved. In the context, it's, it's all kinds of people. All kinds of people can now be saved if God shows us. Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, all kinds of people can now be saved through Jesus Christ. So when Paul says bringing salvation, he's uh, bringing salvation. When you hear that one, you think it's an action, but it's not an action. Bringing salvation is a description. He is describing grace. Salvation is somewhat intrinsic to grace. When you talk about the grace of God, you cannot separate it with salvation. Isn't it? In fact, Titus 3, verse 4, here's how Paul, or Paul replaced the word grace of God with this. But when the loving kindness and goodness of God, our Savior, appeared. He's still talking about the grace of God. But here he says, the loving kindness and goodness of God has appeared. Look at that. Loving kindness of God, our Savior. The grace of God is salvation, if you, might, if you may. To be exact, the grace of God is the means of salvation. Christ is salvation. We cannot separate that from Christ. He is salvation. Christ is the wellspring of all the goodness of God to His people from their election to their regeneration, to their justification, to their sanctification, to their glorification. Everything flows from the grace of God. Paul said in Ephesians 1.4 that we are chosen in Christ. We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. All the spiritual blessings that Paul made mention in Ephesians 1 through 3 to 4 is with Christ or in Christ. And yet we could not respond to the goodness of God. And God has to bring us back to life. He, he, he made us alive together with Christ. Why would God do that? It is still because of grace. Everything is about grace. In fact, when Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Theologians are perplexed. To which is Paul referring to? Is it the faith? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Is it faith? Certainly faith is included. But most agree that it speaks about the whole salvation. The whole salvation is a gift of God in Christ Jesus. It's grace. As far as scripture is concerned, it's grace because he did it, he showed it because of another. Not of any merit that we have, because of another. And that's the biblical description of grace. This is essentially why the reformers insisted to emphasize on grace alone, grace in the past. Now, the reason why Scripture unleashed or ginamit po ng Scripture yung tinatawag po nilang uh, past perfect tense is just so that we would know it's grace. Look at 1 John 5.1. The debate has always been, did I believe in God? Did I choose God? But look at 1 John, for example, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever was born of Him. Look at the first part. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Some would say, that's why if you believe, you will be born again. But that is a denial of the, 
of the um, tense has been born of God is in the past. It has been done in the past, but still true today. So if it is done in the past, that's why you believe. Are you with me? Believe here is present. The reason why you believe today is because in the past, you have been born of God. You have been born again. So you look at that, it's all grace. So when we understand that God does all things because of Christ, there is no such a thing as you cooperate with God that you might be saved. This is the teaching of the medieval theology. There is no such a thing as you cooperate with God so that you might be saved. No, it is monergistic. It is God's work alone. So the unfortunate thing today is that there is so much focus on what man did or what man has to do. Oblivious to the fact, dito po natin nakita na hindi na po natin naiintindihan as we put so much emphasis on man putting his faith in God, we are putting the work of God on the periphery. And when we do that one, we are diminishing. Pinapalit po natin yung ginawa po ng Panginoon sa atin. We are hailing man Tinataas po natin yung tao instead of God. So like the smell of the medieval theology, there is so much in, uh, exhortation today on what should we do. And there is little or even no proclamation of what God has done. Just put your faith in Jesus. You know? Do you want to go to heaven? Put your faith in Jesus. That's not the gospel. I mean, that's the craziest thing to do. If you will ask a person, do you want to go to heaven? No person would say, no, I want to go to hell. No person would do that. We need to present the gospel. So there is so much call to believe, and yet we have forgotten that the Bible says, and the faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We need to be clear of how holy God is and how undeserving, uh, how undeserving we are of anything good from God. But God did everything good from our calling to our predestination, everything, all because of one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if faith, if even faith is given, then we boast not of ourselves. We boast not on what we can do or what we have done. We focus not on what we do for God. We focus on what God has done for us. I don't know if I can still finish one point, uh, but I hope. This leads us to the second point. So as a believer, what about today? What about today? So grace from the past, grace in the present. Again, Titus 2, 11 to 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, jump to verse 12, training us. So the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, we said earlier, bringing salvation is a description. But training us is an active verb. This tells us what the grace of God is doing in our lives today as believers. The grace of God was not just potent for our salvation. The grace of God is so powerfully working in your life right now. When Paul says that the grace of God trains us to renounce in godliness worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, He is bringing to us the bigger picture of salvation. That salvation does not stop with our justification. God is continually saving us. So 
So Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is not simply to satisfy the legal demands of God's justice and righteousness. It is also so that God would conform us to Christ. So our sanctification is part, is part of the redemption that Christ accomplished. Part. This is especially clear. When Paul described Christ in verse 14, here's how Paul described Christ in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. In other words, um, that we would no longer be under the reign of sin. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God redeemed us from sin and worldly passions. So, tinanggal niya po tayo doon, hindi na po tayo hawak ng kasalanan at passions of the world that we might be known as His people. But we will be known as His people by our good works. Good works doesn't save, but we are saved, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Have you ever thought of it? Especially Titus. Titus 2, 1 to 10, and Ephesians 2, 10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And here are the people of God cannot even do good works. To be known as Christians or God's people is not simply to wear t-shirts and says, cruciform life church. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's not the way to be known as God's people. It is by our good works. That's the emblem. That's the sign. That's what we look at people. Look at these things. It shows to us that we are God's people. So surely when we say no, that's renouncing ungodliness and worldly passion, or when we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, it involves our decision. Surely, I'm not going to argue with you, it involves our decision. But here in this passage, to renounce sin and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly life is the object of the training that the grace of God does. Or in other words, it is the goal of the grace of God. For God chose us before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him. The goal is to make us holy and blameless. In other words, our transformation, look, is still by the grace of God. It is still by the grace of God. The idea that God, that the grace of God trains us is not unique. Here's another way of Paul saying here. The love of God compels us. So we are still transformed by God because of Christ. The finished work of Christ is always, always the ground of everything pertaining our salvation. May it be our justification, our sanctification, or later on, our glorification. Kung perfect na tayo ng Panginoon, ang rason kung bakit ginagawa ito ng Panginoon is solely because of what Jesus has done in the cross. That's why Paul simply tells us, look on Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 the writer of the book of Hebrews also said that one. When you seek to persevere, look unto him. When Paul found sanctification as impossible, as impossible by his own strength, to the point that Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Yes, he said it is by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is not some random Jesus Christ. Or a feeling like, oh, Jesus is with me. Paul brought us to what the gospel is all about. When we get to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. But verse 2 to 3 reads, or 3 to 4, sorry. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own in the likeness of sinful flesh over sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying, I am sure 
that while I'm struggling right now, I do what I do not want to do and I do not do what I want to do. And that is true with us. Paul is saying, I will be sanctified because of what Christ has done in the cross. Not, so God did this transformation not only because of Christ, but through the Holy Spirit. And I just want to point out this because I want us to see that it's all grace from start to beginning. From start to beginning, from start to finish. From start to finish, it's all grace. Look at what Paul said, Galatians 3, 2-3. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of the faith? By hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And when Paul admonished the Thessalonians to live in or abstain sexual immorality, he said in verse 7 to 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, Therefore, whoever disregards this, uh, sorry, verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever regards this, disregards not men but God. Look at what Paul said, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit has been given for the purpose of transformation. So this is not to say that we do not exert effort. But our effort is both a display of God's work in our lives and our faith that God is able. So when we read our Bible, when we pray before God, when we try to evangelize, when we worship Him on Sunday, these things that we do are a display that God is working in our lives. At the same time, a display of faith that we believe God can change us. But it's all of God. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So therefore, at the end of the day, you are not 50-50 with God. It is the work of God. That's why, like our justification, God gets all the glory for our sanctification. Again, the grace of God, which God gives in our transformation, it's not simply a reward of our cooperation of the initial grace that He gives. It is given by God through the Holy Spirit because of Christ. Salvation is grace. Through and through. We simply could not adhere to the teaching of the Roman Catholic that says God infused righteousness, initial grace, to us so that by it we can cooperate with God in producing our own righteousness for us to be deservingly rewarded with salvation one day. We could not adhere to that. That's not a biblical teaching. We cannot adhere to this because even the transformation that happens in our lives is by the grace of God alone. So when we are having a hard time, have you ever felt this world is hard? The more I live in this world, the more I realize it is so hard to live for God in this world. So hard. So if we are having a hard time living our lives uh, because of lust, because of worldliness, because of materialism, because of pride, or anything that you are struggling on, it is not enough to just give all your effort. Not enough to just give all your effort. The thinking that says, I will do everything and God will do the rest will not work. It will never work. So do not just try to read more. More chapters from Scripture. Do not just to pray more time. Do not just try to pray for longer hours. Yes, you, you've heard that from your pastor. Do not read more chapters 
and do not pray for longer hours. But there's a caveat. We cannot do this because we are simply doing our part like doing our cooperation. In other words, there's no wrong with that. But if we're doing that, because in our thinking, this is how I cooperate. How then should we do that? Do this. Humble yourself before God in acknowledging that if He would not work, there is just no single transformation that will happen in our lives. No single transformation. In other words, pray like you are really praying. You cannot say, we cannot say that we are praying before God and yet there is still boasting or trusting in ourselves. That's not what prayer is. It's going against the fabric of prayer. You only really prayed. You only really prayed when you see God as your only hope. That's what prayer is. When we see God as our only hope so that like the woman who is bleeding for 12 years, we get, we'll do everything if only we can touch the robe of Christ. That's prayer. And we want to pray in this way. If, if you are having a hard time right now, this is what I always believe. That the reason why we have not overcame it yet is because there is still self-trust in us. Because if we pray like, Paul, like Peter drowning in the sea and simply say, save me. That is a prayer that is a pleasing aroma before God. And he will certainly answer that prayer. We want to pray this way because when it comes to our sanctification, this is the kind of prayer that displays our understanding that even our sanctification is by grace alone. It is by grace alone. I have five minutes to finish the third point. Grace from the past, grace in the present, and grace for the future. Verse 13 to 14, it reads, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, what we cannot right away see in that text is that the appearing of Christ is the fulfillment of what the grace of God really seeks to accomplish. Now, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul calls it our bliss, blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. It's repairing to the coming of Christ. So what is with this appearing of Christ that makes it a blessed hope? No, we know that it is a blessed hope because Paul described, I don't think Paul just simply gave descriptions of Christ. He, Paul always and by the leading of the Holy Spirit, everything he says has a purpose. That he, he describes Christ as the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And he's saying that in this work of God, that's the work of God in sanctification, the culmination of it, the culmination of this work of God is the return of Christ. Our hope is tied to that. Paul calls this hope uh, the redeeming of our bodies or the perfection of our bodies. And look at what Paul said when Paul said this in Romans 8.23. Let's read Romans 8.23-25. to Here's what Paul said. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have already been made alive spiritually through the Spirit, and we have the Spirit. We are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons. And he's saying, the adoptions of sons, it is the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we see, we wait for it with patience. So he's talking about the redemption here. No wonder Paul called Christ in Colossians 1.27 as the hope of glory. But I think John said this rather plainly in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Here's what John said. Take note, we're talking about why the return of Christ is also our blessed hope. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, Christ, we shall be like Him. Because it is the only way we will see Him as He is if we are transformed to be like Him. So let us not miss what Paul is doing here in Titus 2, 13-14. He's showing us the scope of the grace of God. It started in the past. It is working in the present. And it will be completed in the future when God perfects what He is doing in our lives today. So the grace of God in verse 11 is still the subject of verses 13 to 14. It is the subject that brings salvation. It is the subject that Paul talked about our sanctification. And Paul did not swerve from the subject of God's grace when he spoke of our blessedness. It is still by the grace of God. It is still by the grace of God that we will be perfected one day. So he will still do it because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Grace is always God showing goodness to undeserving because of Christ. Whether from the past, in the present, or in the future, it's, it is always grace. If you may, it is grace, grace, grace. So we're not simply hopeful that we will be fully saved one day because we are doing well today. That's not our message. We are hopeful for the future because of what Christ has done. Because of grace. So we're back to our main idea. We insist that it is by grace alone. Because the favorable disposition of God in Christ Jesus towards believing sinners is the source of all His goodness towards us from the past in the present and for the future. As Paul beautifully said in Romans eleven thirty six, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Just one implication in all that we've said. We should not resort. So hindi tayo pupunta doon to our own strength and loosen our grip on grace. The thing is that we can say it's by grace but we mix it with our performance. You know what? When you do that one, we are loosen, loosening our grip on grace. Everything flows from grace. Here's how Martin Luther paraphrased Psalm 130, which captures his understanding of grace alone. He wrote, To love and grace alone can avail. Sorry, the love and grace alone avail. To blot out my transgression, the best and holiest deeds must fail. To break sin's dread oppression. Before thee none can boasting stand. But all must fear thy strict demand. And live alone by mercy. Therefore my hope is in the Lord. Not in my own merit. It rests upon his faithful word. To them of contrite spirit. That he is merciful and just. This is my comfort, my trust. His help I wait with patience. 
wherever you are right now, whether you are saved or you have believed already in Christ Jesus, understand this, it is all by grace. If you are not a believer today and you're thinking, how many Sundays that I still have to come to church before I can be sure of my salvation? How many works of charity that I need to do? How many prayers that I need to, to make? How many chapters that I have to read? Understand this. Put your faith in Christ Jesus alone. For you cannot add anything to what Christ has done. If you're a believer of Christ and you are enjoying victory in your work, walk with Christ, humble yourself and boast in God alone. Because it is the work of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus in you. If you are one who is defeated by sin and the world, humble yourself before God, knowing that God alone can do it. Stop thinking already that you can just do better. Stop thinking that you just have to put in more of your effort. Before you do that, humble yourself first and simply ask the Lord. There's no amount of transformation that God will do outside of what Christ has done. Whatever you're asking of the Lord at this point of your life, do not look on your works and draw confidence from there that God would listen to you. Look on Christ because God will only listen to you because of Christ. So look in Christ, the grace of God, through whom all the goodness of God flows. We should insist that it is by grace alone, because we need God to be unchangeably disposed to show us favor. That's what we need, and He accomplished it through. Jesus Christ, our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for everything is by your grace. You will never show even a little goodness to anyone outside of Christ. So it means, Lord, we pray that we will understand that all your goodness towards us, we do not merit even a single of it. Christ merited it all. Father, I pray that understanding this would shape the church into humility and faith. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church Podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.